Our scripture reading this morning is from Joshua 6, 15 through 20 and 26 through 27. On the seventh day, they rose early at dawn and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab, the prostitute, and all who were with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers we sent. As for you, keep away from the things devoted to destruction so as to not covet and take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel an object for destruction, bringing trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpets, they raised a great shout and the wall fell flat. So the people charged straight ahead into the city and captured it. Joshua then pronounced this oath saying, Cursed before the Lord be anyone who tries to build this city, this Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn, he shall lay its foundation. And at the cost of his youngest, he shall set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua and his time and his fame was in all the land. This is the word for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thanks be to God. Good morning, Ebenezer Church. How are you this morning? Fantastic. It is good to see you here. It's good to be in worship with you. And as always, it's a blessing to always share a message that I feel God wants to share this morning. Uh, so I, I want to begin by saying that I had a thought this week. Um, in pure Pastor Donovan fashion, and I'm sure just like you, you, just like me, you have thoughts as well. But I had a thought this week that occupied most of my thinking for about five days. Uh, the first two days, I am thinking of this uh, question that I have in my heart. I'm pondering this deep question in my heart. And then on day three, I'm tired of pondering. And now I move into a phase of research. I have a question <laughs> that I need answered, and I'm tired of thinking about it. So I go to Google and I do some research on this question that I have. It's been in my mind all week. So why not go to Google to get some answers? I go to Google and I get some answers. But before that, I want to do a poll this morning. This morning, if you would say that you are a person who is filled with, uh, who is easily, who is not easily amazed um, and not easily impressed, raise your hand. If you are not easily amazed, raise your hand. Okay. <laughs> All right. Now, if you are a person who is sometimey, right? Like sometimes I'm easily amazed, but it just kinds of it just kind of depends on what it is. Uh, but you know, for the most part, I'm not easily amazed by much. But some things could amaze me and could spark some <laughs> curiosity. If that's you, raise your hand. Okay, sometimes with it. Okay. Now, if you're, if you're this third person, raise your hands high. <laughs> if you are a person who is inspired and uh, filled with awe about a lot of things in life, raise your hand. If everything amazes you, if you're easily amazed, raise your hand. Okay. 
Awesome. Interesting. Well, I had this thought that really was a question this week. And the question that I had was, how is it that as adults, we find ourselves not having childlike amazement how we were when we were once children? How is it that we find ourselves getting uh, getting away from this state of um, openness that we once lived in or once had when we were younger? Like, how is it and where did we lose that at some point of our lives? And how do we get back to it? How do we get back to the point where we are seeing the awe and amazement and wonder in the world as adults? And it's causing us to feel a particular way. Well, I took my research and my thoughts, I took took my thoughts uh, to Google. And I landed on an article from a psychologist that produced an article that showed some of the trends in children between tri- children and adults. And so here's where some of the fi- here were some of the findings. So for children, children possess within them a deep sense of trust. They have this deep sense of being whelmed, but then also excited about all they have to learn in the world and all they have to learn about people. Hence, here's why they ask so many questions about the world, because they're sparked by utter curiosity. But then for adults, adults, they tend to reckon with the truth of what reality truly is. They tend to make sense of the world that we live in, and because of their hurt and pain responsibilities, because of their desensitization, because of their pain or trauma perhaps that they have had in their lives, they are desensitized to the idea of experiencing and of having wonder and awe. Of being utterly amazed at some things in the world and being utterly amazed at people in the world. The study also showed at the end of, of at the end of it that adults, as they're in this place of not being easily amazed or in wow of particular things because of our experiences in life, show that one of the places that it affects the most is a person's faith, is the faith of the adult, which is the, which is the ability to believe whether that's in things that are seen or unseen. That somehow this disposition of heart of not being amazed or wowed at things a lot of the times in our lives is because of a heart that is impacted or hurt or desensitized to the idea of wonder. You know, I thought this was quite sad this week. That even as a person who is sometimey with being amazed and being wild, that I fit into the category of people who have experienced different points of different things related to trauma and responsibilities and things that keeps me weighed down, that it hinders and it fogs the element of faith in my own life. Now I can tell you, Pastor Donovan, I'm easily humored. If you tell me a dad joke, I will roll on the floor laughing. <laughs> For those of you that that need a a cheat code for Texan, that's (laughs) R-O-F-L. And that's rolling on the floor laughing. That is free. You can have that. (laughs) If you tell me a dad joke, I will roll on the floor laughing. But when it comes to really being impressed or amazed by things, that's where I struggle. If you're like me, I would imagine that sometimes in your life when it comes to having that awe sense of wonder that sometimes you may struggle in your life too. Which is why I'm grateful for this sermon series as we're going through it. As we're uncovering these stories about how God has performed these mighty acts to get people to respond in awe and wonder. Helps us get back to a place in our faith that is childlike. 
where we're able to journey with God with a childlike faith, where we are able to ask the questions and live in awe and let God lead us, God lead us to the place where God is desiring to take us in this childlike manner, even as adults. I hope that the story that we're uncovering today as we're talking about Jericho and the walls around Jericho that fell and this young man who helped to lead this troop and this body of people to do so will spark some curiosity and questions, but then also a sense of awe as to who God is and what God is doing in our world today. So as we pray together, let us pray for how God will inspire our hearts towards wow. God, we thank you so much for your presence here today and your presence in our lives and your presence in our hearts that will soften our hearts to receive this message, but then also receive it so that something deep happens in it or with it. That you stir in our hearts something real, something that we need to know, something that we need to have about who you are and the type of God that we serve. Do, Lord, in the human heart that pa- what Pastor Donovan is not able to do today and go in the place of the human heart where Pastor Donovan was never designed to go, but only you can go, God. So, God, we thank you for this time in Christ's name. Amen. So what is Jericho and why were the walls to Jericho destroyed? Well, I will first have you to know that Jericho is a place that is an ancient city in ancient Palestine, which is today's modern day Israel. Jericho is a popular city in our world history because it's known to be one of the first cities in the entire world. It's the first city that was coined as an Urbana, a city that first that was known for its development of culture and of art and of pottery and of agriculture, but then was also established as one of the most contemporary cities of its day. This is during the ancient times, during this ancient period. Jericho was known for their high fashion irrigation system uh, that allowed for their agriculture to be plentiful and that allowed for their grounds and for things that they wanted to grow uh, to be fruitful. It was a place that were that was known for multiplication. It was a place that was known for how well they had done with building up civilization. Jericho, I will have you to know, is seated within two walls. The story is oftentimes coined Jericho's walls or the wall of Jericho, but there are actually two walls that surrounds this entire city. You see, Jericho is built on a hill and the upper city is protected by a wall and there is an encampment between the first wall and the second wall. So at the lower part of the city, you have an outer wall or what some scholars would call the lower wall. Jericho built this 13 feet fortified city because they sought to protect their cities from their goods and their services and a lot of their irrigate and and, and their uh, fancy irrigation system that they had built up. People during this time sought to overtake Jericho for how they had fashioned modern civilization, for how they were bringing into the new world this new way of living. People oftentimes sought to wage war against Jericho. So they built the city fortified in this way so that they could keep in their goods and service and their civilization. But then also so that they could protect themselves from the worlds and the powers to be. 
Jericho was an actual strong city and the wall that they, it was actually a strong city and the walls that they had built had been known to be an impenetrable wall. Actually, both walls. Both walls were known to be impenetrable. You can't break these walls down the walls to Jericho. They protected their city and they built it this way to make sure that it was protected. But there's also something interesting about Jericho as well. Jericho was also known to be a place that was extremely corrupt. It had been known as a place that at one point worshipped God, but then at another point turned their backs from the God of Israel, from the God of Canaan, the God of the universe. They began to develop false idols. They began melting gold and silver and bronze, creating their own gods and their own styles and fashions of worship. They turned their backs on God and they oftentimes turned their backs on one another. They had a morally corrupt society. People oftentimes in the city of Jericho misused their own bodies and misused one another. There was a distinction between rich and poor. The rich occupied the upper parts of the city and camped within the wall and the poor oftentimes occupied the outer parts of the city. People were used and abused. People were forced into slavery. It was an unjust place and it was an immoral place. It was a place that turned their backs from God and that desperately needed God. Jericho was a fabulous place, but it was also known as a place that was experiencing some deterioration inwardly. So why would the walls of Jericho need to fall? And then more so, why did the walls of Jericho fall as led by this troop and this army of the Israelites? You see, that particular part of the story actually begins in Joshua 1. In Joshua 1, God calls this young adult, this young man, into leadership. It's this young man who had spent time with an older man named Moses, who had had helped deliver the people from slavery. You see, God made a promise with this older man named Abraham and told him that for many generations, you will be blessed with a people. You will be blessed with things and with riches that that as far as your eyes could see. And that not only will I bless you with this, but I will deliver you into a place that I have designed, especially for you, so that I could be your people's God and your people will be my own. When I lead them to that place, they will experience me, live out their faith. They will love me and they will love one another. They will grow with me. They will be in right fellowship with me. But that journey was going to take some time. That journey was initiated by a man named Moses. And Moses was called to take the Israelites out of the hands of the Egyptians. The Egyptians had enslaved the Israelites at one point. And Moses was called to deliver them out of the hand of Pharaoh and to lead them into a place called the wilderness where they will take the next step towards freedom. Well, Moses does that. He leads the people through dry land. You perhaps have probably heard the story before. The rivers, the river, the Red Sea um, had split and the Israelites crossed on dry ground over into a place called the wilderness. And from that moment thereon, God declared that you will be my people. But also, but God also declared that there is more to the journey. 
You see, the Israelites had encamped in this wilderness place for about 40 years. They were in this sort of stuck place (laughs) on their journey towards the place where God was leading them. So God called Joshua to step up and to take over leadership after Moses' death. So year 41, as I like, 41, as I like to call it, comes Joshua in leadership and is getting ready to finish the journey, helping the Israelites to get into the place where God is calling them, which is into the land of Canaan. Well, there's a problem. There are two obstacles standing in the way of the Israelites taking up the place where God wants for them to be. Number one, they've got to cross yet another body of water and they do. Using Joshua's leadership, God calls him and then leads him boldly and mightily to cross through the Jordan River, the next faithful step in order for them to get to the promised land. And again, just like in Red Sea fashion, they pass right through on dry ground and they end up right outside of the walls of Jericho. Well, the second obstacle is Jericho is now in the way. (laughs) This city that was fortified, known for its infrastructure and its civilization, but then also known for its corruption, is in the way of the Israelites taking over the land. So what does God do? God decides to put on a worship service. Decides to put on a ritual ceremony to signify that God is seeking to redeem the land that was made corrupt by the people, the Canaanites living in Jericho. So God does so. God tells for Joshua to gather for himself the Ark of the Covenant, which are the Ten Commandments, which contains the Ten Commandments. Where Moses went up on the hill, got up from God, put it in this nice little gold box (laughs) made of, of wood and some other ornamentations. Containing the Ten Commandments, God also said, take with you seven priests, seven holy men who've been dedicated before me. And then also along with that, take seven trumpets, people who will blow the trumpets. And I want you to take that and march and parade around the walls, the city of Jericho and their walls for seven days. And on the seventh day, I want you to blow the trumpet and let out the best worship that you can put on the best worship service known to man. Well, they do that. They listen to God. Joshua is obedient. They march around the city seven times, and then the walls come crashing down. What's interesting about this story is how it all unfolds. But what's even more interesting is what God is doing in between the text, but then also within the spirit of the story. The first thing that God is doing here is seeking for people to live and worship to God. It's interesting because Joshua and his leadership in taking down the walls of Jericho could have easily used any means to bring down the walls. He could have used military forces. He could have used whatever their bulldozer of their day was and just took a wrecking ball to that thing and had taken it down. But no, God told Joshua to use worship, to use silence, to use song, to use your voice, to use praise, to bring The walls of Jericho down, the place that was keeping in human evil, surround the city with good and with righteousness so that these walls would be destroyed. God used worship and used the Israelites to be a sign of how God is present with them, but then also calls for them to be in a place where God wants to be the God of holiness and of righteousness to these people. 
So God uses worship as an act to say something grand. You see, God uses symbolism sometimes to signify some deeper things. And during the story Jericho, the number seven is used three times with priests and with trumpets and with the number of encirclements that they were to do in order to bring the walls down. And in Hebrew and in Hebrew scripture and in Jewish culture, whenever the number seven is used, it is used to signify or to point back to creation. The seven days where God was creating the world, creating the universe, creating humanity. And as scholars are pointing to, they're saying that God used the seven trumpets and the seven priests who were holy and righteous and the and the seven encirclements to signify that God is restoring and redeeming Jericho, that God is bringing about a new type of creation, that God is, in fact, recreating the world, that God is recreating the place where he is leading his people to the Israelites to. Before that, their evil has to be destroyed. The place where they're keeping evil in and corruptness in has to be brought down. Their walls of corruption has to be exposed. The city has to reckon with all of their wrongdoing and all of the ways that they've misused God and that they've misused themselves. And instead of strong military forces, God uses the act of worship as a way to remind people of the type of God that Israel serves. So he does it. God does that. He uses worship as a way to let Israel know that I want to remain your God and I'm causing amazement and wow to to take place in your life and in your heart so that you will see that I am constantly leading you to a particular place. But then also to the Canaanites living in Jericho, that I'm also doing something holy And that I don't smile on the evil and the human evil that's taking place within your walls. God is using worship to get a point across. But then God is also using this thing called testimony to inspire and to bring about awe in the lives of the Israelites and then also the Canaanites. The Israelites. From the very beginning, when the Israelites started their journey with God, When they first began their journey with God, after they had been delivered from the hands of the Egyptians, from Pharaoh, God led them through the Red Sea. And God, right after that, told them, remember what I have done for you. Remember how I have delivered you from the hand of slavery and captivity and bondage. And not only are you to remember that, but you are to bear witness and testimony and share of the story of what I've done for you for generations to come. That your generation and the generation after you and therefore and thereafter would know about the marvelous, wonderful things that I've done to deliver you, to redeem you, to make you my own people. And God does that. God says, tell the story of what I've done for you. And then God leads them through the Jordan River, allows for them to cross through the Red Sea. And then after they stop and after they camped right outside the walls of Jericho, he said, tell them what I've done for you. Tell the story of what I am doing. I want you to dedicate this place so that people will be reminded of me and how I am redeeming the world, how I'm redeeming my people, but also leading them to a particular place. 
God is, is sparking in the hearts of the Israelites this sense of wonder through worship, but then also this sense of awe and wonder as in they are required and almost filled with love and joy to tell the story of how good God has been to them. That they are so overwhelmed with how big and vast God has been that they can't help but to tell the story for many generations. God also made it clear that the place known as Jericho was to be dedicated as a place of destruction. That although although this place and its walls was destroyed, it should also be signified as a holy place. A place that is known to be a place where God has redeemed it. So that every time you see this city or hear about this city, you not only will think about how, how, that how God has delivered a particular people, but how God has redeemed a particular place and have made it holy. And that God is able to bring down our own walls too, even the walls that we build in our own lives. That God is able to expose the evils of our hearts and of our lives and of our world only so that we may be invited to something different. So that we may be invited to a better place and a better way of living. Through the story, God is using worship to, to say, to, to, to expose God's self, but then it's also using storytelling as a way to create awe about who God is. But then also God uses this last thing called fear. It's called fear. Before I get into this next part, I want to, I want to let you know that when I was in seminary, my Hebrew Bible professor uh, said that there are seven Hebrew words that every Christian should know. There are seven Hebrew words that every Christian should know. I won't embarrass myself today and say all seven of them. Um, but I will, um, I will allow you the opportunity to, in your own time, go and study these words. Um, in your digital bulletin right at the top is our, our seven Hebrew words that every Christian should know. And one of those words is a word called yira. Could you say that with me? Yira. Yira. That's right. The word yira is used for the very first time in scripture. And it's known as a word called fear. But the word that's used in Joshua when God is referring to the way that God is delivering God's people and restoring them and bringing them to a new way and causing fear in their hearts. It is this word, Yura, but that in the English language is translated to be awe. In Joshua 4 and 24, here's how we hear it. For the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan what he had done to the Red Sea. When God dried it up before your very eyes and when you crossed over on dry land, Remember that God has done this. He did this so that all the people of the earth might know the hand of God and that the hand of the Lord is powerful so that all generations to come will fear the Lord our God. That people for generations will live in awe of who God is, will live in amazement of who God is. At this point of scripture, what God was stirring in the hearts of people was not that trembling type of fear that we experience when we have to prepare a sermon on Sunday or for Sunday. Or when we are having to speak in front of an audience or when we're afraid of a particular people or thing. But what God is wanting to inspire in the hearts of the Israelites, but then also the land that God has taken over, is a sense of awe and amazement 
of who God is and the type of God that Israel is serving. And the truth is, I think that God is even inspiring that sense of awe in us today. That God calls for us too to live in worship to God, to live in amazement of what God is doing in this world. Only so that we may tell the story, we may bear witness and testify about the type of God that we serve. You see, the word awe is meant to rely, is meant to relay how amazing God is, how bountiful and how beauty God is, how God is beyond our comprehension, how we are wowed by God and how by, and how because of God's vastness and bounty, We are brought to the place of having childlike faith, that it is awe, yira, that it is fear that causes worship in our lives, that causes us to be humbled by God in a way that is childlike, and then cause for us to tell the story just as how we tell the story of other amazing things in this world, that God wants us too to tell a story of how amazing God is. I find that I have this sense of awe whenever I am taking the trash out too late. (laughs) When it's 11 p.m. and I'm rushing out of the door to before bed to take the trash out and I throw the trash in the trash bin. And before I head inside, I look up and I see the vastness of the sky and I look at the bounty of the stars and I'm filled with awe and amazement. And how God could create something so incomprehensible that it causes fear, that it causes awe, that it causes beauty in my heart. And it stirs for me to, to worship God because of that bounty, because of that beauty. And it stirs this newness in my heart for God that I never had before. It invites a new way of living for me, this seat of awe. And I think that we're, we too are invited to have that same sense of wonder that God becomes so amazing to us that we're humbled by God and humbled by the things of God so that it sparks in us this childlike faith and curiosity. Amen.